0: Welcome back to Conversations at the Leaky Cauldron, Episode 11, Harry Potter and the Order of Phoenix, Chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18, Detention with Dolores, Percy and Padfoot, the Hogwarts High Inquisitor in the Hogshead, Educational Degree, Number 24, not the last one, we'll see, and 18, Dumbledore's Army. Back with me, my esteemed, co- esteemed colleagues, Ms. Sarah Miller, Mr. Wesley Shantz. Ms. Sarah Miller, welcome, Mr. Wesley Shantz. Nice to talk to you again.
1: Yeah, long, long time.
0: It's been a whole 14 hours, I think. Greetings, greetings. So, you know, I don't really have an outline for today. I've just been looking forward to this. And, you know, we've had a pretty interesting pre-show talking about other things. So I think we got plenty out of our system. But um, as usual, I'm feeling a bit like Harry. And, um, well, you know, why don't we start with Detention with Dolores? We didn't have a lot of time to talk about Professor, so-called Professor Umbridge. Um, Recently, So I suppose I want to ask a little bit about her medieval methods uh, to you two, what you thought about her, what you thought about her of all people telling Harry not to tell lies, especially given, um, you know, the fact that he seems to be being pretty honest, though he doesn't yet know uh, how to express himself in the most rhetorically refined ways. and uh, well, just how you felt about that situation, whether you felt like it was unjust, whether you thought there was something to what she was saying, is there, am I missing something? I think I'm, I'm just sort of a typical reader and that I feel infuriated by uh, the injustice of her assigning detention to um, Harry for speaking the truth, uh, especially after teaching Dante's Paradiso and knowing well um, the great quote that the justice of, uh, the justice of God is inverted in the world of man. So that that which is actually just is turned into injustice in the world. That's what I seem
2: to think. But, well, what do you two think? Wes, you want to take that one? Well, so we, we sort of
1: danced around Dolores Umbridge last episode. I was trying to remember when she came up exactly, I guess just cause she's sort of lurking in the shadows and, She's described as toad-like and stuff like that, but, but we finally kind of meet her here and we meet her in the context of a confrontation with Harry right away, right? And so, you know, anyone who's going to confront Harry is automatically going to be seen as suspect for us. Um, so I don't think we can possibly give her a fair shake the way that she's presented in the book. She's clearly an evil character. And it's just the, the nature of her evil that's sort of interesting and it becomes clear uh again pretty quickly once she actually gets on the scene. Um, she makes him write, I must not tell lies, until the words are etched in, like she says, until they sink in. Um, and this is like the most galling thing as a reader, right? Because you're literally forced with Harry to sit there and her. Hideous, you know, saccharine office, and watch Harry write this over and over, um, in his own blood, and you know, Harry's scar and his blood have been such important and deep, you know, significant things, and now they're being just like trotted out as, you know, the most banal punishment, but with this sick twist. It, it's it's a very bizarre part of the book. It's very unsettling. She's hideous. Um, But then, you know, she's never really given a chance to be anything but hideous. So I don't know. I find her, you know, as symbolically kind of interesting, too. Like, what sort of a thing within education or within politics does she represent? um, And why is it so loathsome to us? Like, it's kind of interesting to try to think that through. But, yeah, I
0: don't know. What do you think, Sarah?
2: I mean... I, I too find her interesting in a symbolic way to me just to pick up on that. To me, I think she represents like the worst elements of um, among many other things, what she represents uh, is the worst elements of ed- the education system. Um, I'll say that, like in the reading for today, setting aside the detention, which was like draconian and disgusting. um, the the fact, I think, that she, uh, the way she runs her classroom, she, the kids are in there, they are told to read, there'll be no need to talk, there'll be no need, I think, uh, as one of the characters says, no need to think. Um, they're reading a book and then they're writing out key words and pieces of information, re- you know, multiple times for maximum retention. Maybe I'm confusing the Book in the movie, but um, her pedagogy is so bad that the fact that she is now evaluating other teachers' pedagogies um, is, to me, symbolic and, and laughable. And I'll be honest, like I don't love the idea of divination, but actually, like the the more we get into this, into this this particular book, the more I'm seeing like, huh you know, there's something about it that's really valuable. It's hard to pin down. And it's sort of hard to know when you're doing it right. And there is something about Trelawney that seems kind of ridiculous. But the lesson that she delivers when she's being observed is actually like not a bad lesson. Like come in, take out your homework, check it with your partner, and then apply what you did yesterday in class and last night for homework to this new thing that's a little bit more complex and I'm going to circulate while you're doing partner work. That is not a bad way to begin class. And the fact that somebody as pedagogically pathetic as Dolores Umbridge is the one who's in charge of evaluating her to me is highly symbolic. Definitely a comment upon what kinds of learning we um, tend to politically value and what kinds of learning we actually ought to value, I think is is just super interesting. Um, and then to your other point about the detention, I think one thing that I thought was interesting and I didn't remember uh, from the book, but was that Harry doesn't reveal what's going on and he almost takes it as a point of, that for as much as he can't control himself in the class um, with his outbursts he controls himself enormously in her class or, or sorry in her office when he's doing the detentions right he like he says you know the only thing the only noise he made um from like five to midnight was saying uh you know hello and goodbye or whatever the equivalent of that was like what an enormous test of his resolve. And it's, I think, ironic that he, that this thing that from her perspective um, is designed, this, this detention is designed to teach him something, to let it sink in, is, is actually having the opposite effect, which is how I feel about detention in general uh, as a pedagogical tool. But that, like, this isn't how you modify behavior, A., and B, it's actually stealing him, like it's making him stronger, it's giving him an opportunity to practice a necessary skill of controlling his emotions, I just find that like wonderfully ironic, and I can't wait to see her get hers. you know?
0: Oh, and I've got quite a bit to say about when she gets hers, exactly what that means. I'll bring up a very famous mythological example from Ovid, the centaurs and the lapids. But I want to jump into what she symbolizes because she seems to have uh, a bit of a conflict. She seems to be a bit of a foil with Minerva McGonagall, who we've discussed as a figure of, of course, Minerva or wisdom or Athena, and herself is a teacher of transfiguration. So how to, by means of wisdom, transform the world around oneself and it seems as if umbridge in a differing ways attempts to legislate the world around her in order to mm. we mm-hmm. will soon see that she does twice el- break the law in order to uh to achieve her ends um she'll she'll later you know use uh, the attempt to use cruciatus curse and we'll find out that she had some hand in uh sending the dementors towards Harry, but I I just wonder what you've made of the symbol. The fact that she, as a careerist power monger, who even within the Hogwarts uh, um, power structure, uh, continues to acquire power, professorship, high inquisit high inquisitor uh, role. Eventually, she will supplant Dumbledore for a time as the uh, as the headmaster. And um, to what extent? Her sort of Adlerian pursuit of power is antithetical to the educational aims of pursuing wisdom, and uh, whether you saw mm. her sort of her sort of careerist or and I keep using that word, we could use a different word, sort of perspective or attempts to aggrandize herself in order to achieve a, sort of a fascist dictatorial role where her rule is law is completely law, even though she claims it is in the service of fudge. I, I would say that there's there's some question about whether that's actually true or whether she's personally serving herself. So I guess what I'm asking is whether she symbolizes a force within education, which is antithetical to the actual goals of education. Um, and let me throw that at you first, Wes, and then you, Sarah, I'm not very good at distinguishing between you two you, uh, or, or, or defining who I'm asking those questions to. I should be better.
1: Yeah, I, I can say some things, but uh... the the way that she seems to reject you know the truth and then demand that Harry Potter not tell lies seems to kind of encapsulate her for me you know like the reason that she thinks he's telling lies is because she has a priori false understanding of the truth itself right and and that's like when you have someone like that I mean it's it's like the Malfoys too right like their their very name as her very name let's you know what kind of characters they are and and they're just kind of never going to have a chance um in this in this framework um so i think that that is deeply untrue to the world as it is um so i don't know how useful it is to kind of take her hook line and sinker as you know a symbol for anything except you know a a particular kind of bad decision or something like that um, on the other hand her uh her sort of me- method of teaching yeah it seems like really useless and it should be easy for another teacher to correct that or for Dumbledore to correct that but then you combine that with her you know ability to change the law right and to be in a sense above the law because she's kind of riding it like a, a surfer on a wave right and as it changes she's just a step ahead and so she's we're, we're told about this in Percy's letter um you know she she's like Percy but even worse uh, mm-hmm. in some way you know so i yeah I, I think i think in this in this case um she's again someone who's so kind of over the top evil um that as you say like we just inevitably are going to see her get you know the Get the consequences of that down the line somewhere. Um, how that is, how that comes about, I don't. I honestly don't remember that well. But I know it involves Hagrid. Mm-hmm. I think, if I remember right. So that's that's cool. I'm glad he's going to come back into the story at some point.
0: It involves some centaurs too, and will be rather brutal. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to mention the fact that she, like Voldemort, is herself a half-blood who conceals that fact about herself in order to, again, pretend to be something that she is not. Sarah, what do you
2: think? Yeah, I mean, like I mentioned, and I think like what you just said, she is like pedagogically bad. Like she's not a good teacher, right? Um, And the fact that she's also um, in some, you know, that she has access to power, I think I I I definitely see your point, Wes, that, like, I don't think that there, I don't think that I know people who are as malevolent as she is. I, I hope to God I don't. Um And, and she has, like, you know, but she's a different kind of evil than we, than we have encountered, maybe because of the, um a couple of things. One, because of how demurely she presents herself, um, and two, because of, how much she, uh, how much power from the outside world she has that she brings into, um, into Hogwarts, right? Like, uh, I think she's different than the evil of even Lucius Malfoy, right? Because he's not at Hogwarts, his son is. And just as like a side note, when um, when Educational Decree Twenty Four happened, and all of the teams were disbanded. Um, and we hear Draco Malfoy, um, like kind of boasting loudly that Slytherin was able to reform their team. And he was talking about, well, it was was a no brainer because of my father. Honestly, I don't know why this didn't hit me before, but it was, it was for the first time where I actually said, wow, that is so sad that this kid is so insecure that all he has to appeal to is the power of his father. Um, and he probably doesn't even know it, but how sad and pathetic is it that he can't even get anything on his own? He has to. He attributes all of his success to his father's good name or his father's wealth. And this is a time in his life where he should be rebelling against that. But anyway, my point is, I feel like Umbridge is a is a, a category of evil that we have not yet seen, um, and it's because she is like incompetent. And cruel, and that's wedded to power. Like I think one of the things that she might represent is is when you have uh, when you have people or figures or uh, you know, individuals who masquerade as wise, who masquerade as experienced and, you know, prudent and um, highly skilled but who are simply in a position because they are sycophants and they know how to play a game like Percy um, and uh, because they are, you know, touched with ambition and they have the power to make their position look like merit, but it actually isn't merit, right? Like she didn't even get the job because she's a good teacher. She got it because she was a, they at the ministry were able to change the law so that if Dumbledore couldn't appoint or couldn't name a teacher they could you know install one like that that, that alone is like she doesn't have the requisite legit experience to be doing this but she has the power to make it look like she does right so um I think that that is a very real reality or that is a reality in our world where like experience, expertise is often derided as somehow elitist and, um, people, people can somehow say that like, you know, if I'm in a position of power to create a narrative or to say legislate, um, I I can pass myself off as worthy of being listened to, but I'm really only, you know, wealthy or something like that. Um,
0: yeah, well, not to mention the fact <laughs> that she she wields power without uh, she wields power over education without having herself ever educated. And you can see just how effective she is in the classroom. But I do see several corollaries with her throughout the epic tradition. Of course, there's Thersites in the Iliad who knows many words but speaks in a disordered way and is hateful to both Achilleus and Odysseus, talented individuals. And is ugly. It's really is really ugly, uh, and it has the most physical description of any character in Homer. By and is considered both the worst and the ugliest of the Achaeans. It's true. And Wes and I recently talked that we lost a lot of this material because of my own foolishness um, about the connection between moral rectitude and good looks. But uh, there's also the character of eurylochus in the Odyssey, who is the mm-hmm. brother-in-law of. Odysseus, who um, uh, three times speaks against Odysseus and each time ends up getting people either turned into pigs or killed and has the gall to blame Odysseus for his own mistakes. Um, but the biggest um, corollary I see is of course the the Grand Inquisitor and the brothers Karamazov who has a conversation with Jesus. And I see not only mm-hmm. an antipathy between that Grand Inquisitor and uh, the, Jesus, but also between Dolores Umbridge slash the ministry of magic or an institution that has become corrupt and its relationship to the truth. And so my next question is, what is the relationship between the ministry of magic and the daily profit, both institutions and disseminators of um, I, of information, you might say, right? The Ministry of Magic legislates and supposed to, is supposed to do that in the best interests of all magical creatures. That is the statue that they have. Um, I believe the statue has goblins, um, perhaps even house elves, also humans. It's the Ministry of Magic. Mm-hmm of magic humans um, and that's something that Dolores Umbridge will forget quite a bit when she confronts the centaurs later but um also the the prophet seems to so seems to have also taken the same position on harry as the ministry has and they both become sort of anti-potter anti-dumbledore and if dumbledore is a figure of god the father Father, or that which disseminates truth in the world. What does that mean about the institutions in this magical world? What does that mean about institutions in general? Do you two think?
1: Uh, I, I guess there's something of a separation of powers issue here. Um, obviously, the ministry does seem to have an awful lot of of power, but, but you know, as Dumbledore pointed out in Harry's hearing, like it doesn't really extend down into the particulars of what goes on at Hogwarts. And, and when he says that, you know, of course, Fudge comes back at him and says, well, laws can be changed. Right. And so that seems to be sort of the, the, the approach that they've been taking here because they can't do it with their traditional already quite extensive powers. They're just feeling free to expand those um, as necessary to kind of undermine Dumbledore and. Uh, take more kind of smaller details into their purview than previously have been, Um, which I think is another kind of indication of, well, you know, ways that education can go wrong, right, when the the kind of separation of powers, so to speak, where the teacher in their classroom can sort of do things their way because that's their job (laughs) versus, you know, having someone come in from outside and Um, based on whatever experience they may or may not have and whatever preconceived ideas they come with, of course, they can make some adjustments and potentially some catastrophic ones. So anyway, I mean, we see that with um, even a teacher that we might not have thought much of before, right? Trelawney, where suddenly she becomes sort of more valuable just by her um, confrontation with and, and sort of being juxtaposed against what Umbridge represents, you know. Um, I think, Sarah, you were saying it's like suddenly Trelawney looks kind of important and interesting um, beside all that.
0: Well, not to mention the fact that later on we will see that a a big part of Harry's dreams has to do with a room that's full of prophecies. So, you know, nothing is as it seems. But, okay, I have a specific question, uh, and I'm sorry that I'm harping on on uh, Umbridge here, but she's a galling figure, really. She gets under my skin, I'd say, more than any character I've ever seen uh, in Harry Potter. And and for that reason, I think I've avoided this book and this movie often, because she really gets my goat, as it were. But I wanna ask you, Sarah, what do you think the relationship is between her restricting Harry's freedoms and Harry's disobedience and taking on additional responsibilities? She kicks him off the Quidditch team. She she's, she will eventually keep him from even, or and all students from even gathering together. And how do you see sort of the Weasley's reaction to that as a manifestation of sort of compensation or the Jungians would call it a compensatory effect. You try and repress something, it comes out in a different way. And how do you see Harry's response to that? Is it a mature response? Is it just a rebellious response? Is this a natural response to repression? What do you think of that?
2: I mean, what do you mean? Are you talking about her not allowing him to go to uh, to to move the detention, um, and and what does that do?
0: How, yeah, how does that so,
2: inspire his future action? Is that what you mean?
0: I'm, I'm asking about. So she she specifically starts to restrict his freedoms and all the other students. These these decrees they don't empower the students. Mm-hmm. to restrict them. But I, I forget. I think it's within these chapters. Perhaps perhaps it's not that um, Harry. Harry and the Weasley twins get kicked off the Gryffindor um, Quidditch team. Was it in these chapters or does that come a little bit late?
2: Um, I don't remember that one. Do you remember that?
0: Okay. That's not happened. Okay. So we can talk about that in the future. Well, what do you think then? So I'm looking at 18 specifically Dumbledore's army. How do you see the Mm -hmm. fact that she stops allowing them to use useful magic um, and Mm -hmm and will eventually say that students cannot gather together, sort of like the British said about Americans before the revolution, um, the American Revolution. What, yeah. how, do you, how do you see like these, the, she's starting to take away what makes Hogwarts a beautiful place, a free place, a laissez-faire place and uh, changing it into sort of a, a, a saccharine, as you were saying, a uh, safe space um, that is a place sort of devoid of life which the students are really starting to fight against so much so that they start, they literally start an army. Right. Um, and so, well,
2: yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, so I want to hesitate against using the language, like of the, mo- of the primary world that like a safe space is somehow bad. Um, in here. I, cause I don't think that that's what she's creating. Actually. I think she's creating a place of willful ignorance and not a place where kids right. can go and be themselves fully without fear of like is this a safe space is supposed to be a place you know where like you can go and 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 be honest and and like not fear re, you know retribution or judgment or whatever but um i'm just thinking of the places that we deem to be safe spaces at our school they are places not like cones of silence but they're there are places where, like, we're very, very clear about, like, um, what kinds of things can happen there, but they're not designed to liberate, or not certain, that's, that's the opposite of what I, what I want to say. They're not designed to imprison anybody. They are designed to specifically um, make people who don't feel free, feel free in in a way. But, because I think what she's doing is actually not, is, is making things, um, Less safe for their, like for them as thinkers, because I, I do I think agree. that I do think that. Um, uh, and I, I was just talking about this with a student earlier today, actually, that uh, we were talking about Creon, in um, in Antigone, and he's writing a paper about um, something in. He's writing a paper about what he sees as um, like not just. Uh, you know, like this lovely patriotism that Creon claims to be acting out of, but like genuine paranoia um, in a time of crisis. And he's he's trying to make the, he's going to make the argument that, that, you know, that Creon's downfall is a consequence of like shrouding his own insecurities in the language of false patriotism. And um, we were talking about like at, at a beach, when you try and hold the sand in your hand um, and you grip too tight and all the sand comes out, um, I think that that's just a nice metaphor for when when you um, uh, uh, work against what I think are um, natural impulses of curiosity and creativity, um, uh, when you when you dampen those, I think they go elsewhere, and sometimes they go places that are not okay. Um, and sometimes they go places like Hermione's constant knitting, right? And she's constantly making stuff, and she has has this idea for a new uh, a new way to learn, and that's creative and innovative, right? I think um, uh, really repressive spaces. Like um, Umbridge's classroom, they can also create rage, right? Which is what it does for for Harry. Um, they can create apathy, right? Um, which it seems to do for a lot of other students who like get really bored. Um, and I think I think that that's sort of what I see, um, like in a, in a super repressive space where you're not allowed to to think. Now, I'm not also going to say that like there should be. Um, you know, all things are are um, are welcome. You know that like there should be no rules, all that. Like I don't believe in that either. Teenagers don't don't benefit from no rules either. Um, but nor do I think nor do I think that that's conducive to learning. But um, she just goes all in on these like extreme. Like she's creating it. She's trying to create unthinking students, and I think it's interesting that they they want to learn by doing. Um, I think it's also interesting that they form this army and normally in an army, I mean, I've never been in the military, but there's a there's a measure of training within the military that that kind of cuts out the thought piece from like stimulus thought response, right? Like there's a stimulus and you have to respond in the military and sometimes you're not supposed to think about that and you're supposed to take orders, and, uh, you're not always free to question that, um, and it's funny that they call it Dumbledore's army when what they're doing is, is genuine disobedience, like, born of rebellious thought. um, because that's not necessarily what would fit in an army. Um, I'm not sure if that is totally what you were asking, Alex, but, um, that's well, I, nice. I think that's
0: good. No, that's excellent. So that makes me want to ask Wes, what is it that Dolores Umbridge is protecting these students from and is she successfully doing it?
1: Um, yeah, that's a good question. Cause I don't get a sense that her motivation is really to protect them. You know, that, um, that she genuinely thinks that Harry um, is a liar or that she genuinely thinks that Dumbledore is uh, losing his um, his touch or something like that. I, I, don't, I don't remember that well, like how much of this is is really malicious and how much of it is that, that she's ignorant. But the sense that I get is that she's mostly trying to um, follow, pursue her own ambitions and um, undermine the, the power and popularity of others that, that she comes in contact with who you know, uh, for whatever reason she resents or just feels are, are over, um, uh, overvalued or something like that. She, she seems like basically a a kind of, um, um, basically a kind of negative character, you know, uh, a kind of anti, uh, I don't know, anti-Dumbledore maybe, or, uh, just a kind of locus of of all of the things that you know Harry is already feeling anyway, but well here's like the perfect uh person to to take all those things out on, right? And then, you know, he can't, which makes it all the more frustrating. Um he has to keep it bottled up and it's rough. Um she doesn't let them use magic. It's a book about magic and she <laughs> it's a class about defending yourself against the dark arts and she doesn't let them use their their wands. It's it's absurd.
0: Okay, and so, well, we've been, I've been harping a bit on Umbridge. What do you think, Sarah, what do you think about Percy's place in all of this? It's very interesting. He seems to have thrown his law uh, with the minister a bit, but he seems to also have turned against his family. This this recalls to me a little bit Antigone as well, and the sort of tension between um, one's government and system of laws and one's family. Also, uh, a platonic dialogue. I. I think it's the Phaedo, it might be the Phaedo, or no, it's, it might be the Clitophon, whichever dialogue, it's in the five dialogues, the early dialogues of Socrates, where uh, Socrates is on his way to his trial and he runs into a young man who is about to go sue his father uh, because he says it's right. And so I, I, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about the tension that Percy creates within his family and um, what you thought about that, whether you connected that with Umbridge as well. Um, what do you think about oh. Percy right now?
2: for I Percy is so yucky. Um, <laughs> that letter, I think that letter was like extremely upsetting to read for me. Um, I think it comes right on the heels of a, of a detention um and so to hear him write like Dolores Umbridge a truly delightful woman who I know will be only too happy to advise you and of course she is only too happy to give advice but she is far from truly delightful um and uh you know I can can just he's so stodgy and like you just want to say dude you're 20 years old like live a little um he it's funny because uh there's a line where he says that your loyalty should be like to Hogwarts itself and to the ministry and not to um, uh, uh, your family or your friends um and i I can't seem to find that in the letter I'm just uh, scanning it right now. Um, uh, but it is, I don't know, to me, it's just so, it's so misguided. And yet, it, like with Umbridge, like w- what you were saying, uh, you know, I don't know how much is she's actually trying to protect the kids. I really don't think she is. I think she's trying to protect herself and the minister and the ministry. And it's like, it just seems like they have, they believe one thing that fully changes the rest of the logical, like processes that they go through to make conclusions that like, if that it's like a, a gap in the code, right? Like he's, he's so um, uh, um eloquent and, but he's, he's just like, completely in the wrong direction i don't know if that i don't know if i'm making any sense but it just seems like there's like something is off in the in the data set that he is uh that he is starting from and so he reaches this like radically strange and messed up conclusion it's kind of hard to see how he comes from the same family as ron and Ginny and fred and george and bill and and um uh, And what's their other brother's name? Charlie, Charlie. like how is this one of their children? I don't understand. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, sometimes nature, not sometimes, but like, you know, nature can, you know, be more powerful than nurture at times. But anyway, I'm sorry. That's sort of a rambling comment. I really, I found him like really upsetting. Uh, in in this particular reading, and I was really glad that Ron did too. Um, and they sort of laughed off the the letter, um, but yeah,
0: yeah. And I mean, he is in himself uh, fairly successful. He does seem to fall along the same lines as. Umbrage in that respect, but that makes me want to connect sort of him and also the idea that the justice of the world can be inverted with the idea of Sirius. Seems like Sirius now finds hmm. himself again imprisoned and imprisoned again with his evil memories again, because with whom is he imprisoned? Well, and where is he imprisoned? In his ancestral home, sort of like Harry has been imprisoned in his cupboard uh, with his family that he despises so much literally with a picture of his mother that shrieks that has a house elf that still goes to talk to her. So it's like he is totally confronted with and trapped within his own, uh, past. And while the, the, the resources of the ministry are completely devoted to finding and, uh, finding him and getting him kissed by a Dementor while Dumbledore or excuse me, while Voldemort is actually back. Um, and so I, I, I guess I want to um, see if we can draw a parallel between the imprisonment of Sirius unjustly and the sort of also unjust um, rise to prominence of Percy um, or, or if we see that in a different way. Um, I guess, starting with you again, Wes, what do you think of that?
1: Uh, So there's something interesting with the way that um, Sirius, he he, uh, tells Harry, you know, maybe you're not so much like your dad at some point. Um, he's like, as I thought you were, and that's obviously really disappointing for Harry to hear is this is one of the people who he most looks up to and, you know, has really, um, connected with, but on the other hand, um, it sort of suggests again, that there's, there's kind of these complexities to, to families, right. And the ways that Traits um, get passed on and get taught, and what sort of components are just sort of built into a person, right? Um, In Percy's case, he had the same upbringing more or less, but for whatever reason, he's taken a totally different path from all the rest of his family. And in Sirius's case, the same deal, right? His family's, uh, you know, powerful dark wizards going back generations, and he is. Definitely not. Um and he would rather uh run around and hang out with werewolves and uh and and rats. So uh and a stag, right? But that stag is dead now. So okay. Anyway, so like there's there's an issue there of like um true bloodedness, right? That sort of blood image coming back again and you know to what extent it can be controlled and, and to what extent it can't. Um that's kind of where that question would lead me to to think.
0: What do you think, Sarah? What do you think about the imprisonment of Sirius? Do you think this imprisonment is worse? Is this what he Mm. wanted to get free of? Is this uh, imprisonment symbolic uh, of something something deeper? Is he a good foil to someone like a Percy um, uh, in this respect? Well,
2: they certainly, I certainly advocate the exact opposite right like um and someone like I think it was I thought it was interesting when um they were talking to Sirius in the fire I think it was the first the 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 time it like right before Umbridge's hand is in the fire um which is just described so gross she's got like these fat fingers with like gross little rings on them anyway um, and he says that one thing I think that was thought that was interesting is that um Molly Weasley tells Sirius to tell Ron that he is under no circumstances to um uh, participate in a secret defense against the dark arts club because he'll be surely be expelled and it would it would affect his chances at the in the future and I thought, hmm, that sounds an awful lot like like advice that Percy would give um and it's, uh, you know, it's not the advice um, that Sirius would give. He, he sort of cautions them a little bit, but, you know, says maybe it'd be better if you're going to be expelled to know what the hell you're doing on the outside. Um, this imprisonment that he's experiencing is, I suppose, symbolic because he's stuck in a place that he, um, like the, the one place he wanted to leave is the very place he can no longer escape right? And at every turn, he's faced with these reminders about who he was and where he comes from. And he has a really hard time with that, right? Like, he does not seem to be reconciled to the fact that he comes from these people. um, And he thought and lived differently than them, and they rejected him for that. But he doesn't seem at peace about, about where he comes from, and like accepting that maybe that wasn't where he would have chosen to be from. Um, it also seems a lot like Harry, who does is certainly not at peace with like the load that he's been saddled with, the way that he explodes at Ron and Hermione when they suggest that he be their teacher. Um, I think we finally get a, a glimpse into what makes him so mad that like that the the idea that he was so close to death and the only reason he survived is because he as Voldemort needed his blood. Right. And so he had a hand in this in a way. Um, and, and he's like in, imprisoned in another way, right? Like in, in his inability to kind of connect in the same way with the people he once did. Um, I think the lack of control he has over himself makes him feel like, Maybe he's a prisoner to his emotions. Um I I I think it's interesting that like um these, you know, contrast contrast that with work with like Percy, right? That like Percy doesn't seem to be imprisoned in any way. But is, is that is that is that I'm losing the question in terms of my memory, but
0: um you're making I, me think interesting things as if And I don't know if this is quite right because I see Sirius in two ways because of that. I see him sort of as uh, the subject of his own decisions and what the output of them are. He seems to have gone from somebody of massive freedom, right? He was a handsome young man who could turn into a dog and could do whatever he wanted, regardless of the rules said he had this incredible pride of place. So on the one hand, but, but then obviously he ends up in Azkaban, makes this terrible decision about trusting Peter Pettigrew, loses his best friend, has to look for uh, sort of support in Harry, doesn't always work out, is sort of stuck in his own home. In some ways, Snape is getting the, bass, the last laugh on him, who is now a respected professor and head of Slytherin House and himself can travel between worlds as much as he would like. Um, and so I, I do have a lot of trouble with that with Sirius because I do... Uh, of course, associate with him quite a bit. And you know now, now I, of course, believe in the big five um, personality inventory instead of the Myers-Briggs, which is not based on empirical evidence. But in sort of Harry Potter ones, he has the same personality type as me. And I would say he is very similar um, to me with this sort of devil may care attitude. But on the other hand, I also sort of see, and I'm not sure if, if this is grounded in facts, him him and James as sort of embodiments of when the world is free in the most appropriate way, sort of the beauty of human spirit that can come to be. Like you can get a prongs, a James Potter, who later on we'll find out is maybe not actually the best guy, not maybe not even as good as his son, which is maybe pretty impressive for a son. But um and you can have sort of a serious going free, but the more restrictive the world becomes, the more these sort of I don't know, um, um, free spirits become hampered. Um, I'm not sure.
2: Hmm.
0: I mean, uh, well, I guess, I, I, yeah. What do you think? I, of that?
2: I guess I, I see that, that idea that, you know, that he's a, he's imprisoned in the place that he comes from, which is this place of purity and he rebelled, you know, um, and maybe hasn't, and, like, that was a great act of freedom, but it wasn't like he was rebelling for something. He was rebelling from something, like, from a way of life that was way more restrictive. And It doesn't seem like he's he's free for anything. He's free oh, from constraints, but that constraint is not channeled. And that's part of, I think, like, part of what frustrates him in being stuck in Grimald's place is that he can't help the the order right he can't do anything useful and um even hermione of course because isn't it obvious like she she says that and i feel like feels it more often than she says it but um even hermione picks up on that like you know isn't this exactly what he would be doing you know forming some secret society and like breaking the rules should we really be should is he really the best judge and and it turns out that, like, he and James were, like, pretty nasty people. So, like, I think freedom from all restraint without a sense of what freedom ought to be for or how it ought to be used, a sense of, like, you know, directing principle and, like, this is what your freedom gives you the freedom to go do uh, positively as opposed to, you know, freedom to, like, lounge around in the shade and you know, trip the light fantastic or whatever. Um, I think like we see later that Sirius and James, they, they did some terrible things and that's what, that's the other side that you get when, when you break the rules, right. Or when the rules are less strictly, um, uh, you know, enforced or they are less clearly defined or whatever. Um, and, and that there's, there is a, a, a space in the middle, right, where like good things are cultivated and maybe the other things are softened or or disincentivized. And I, I don't know. I, I don't know if that sort of if that makes any sense or I feel like I've maybe strayed from the Harry Potter point. But I think part of what he is stuck in Grimmauld Place wondering about is like, what am I what is my purpose? I can turn into a dog, but I can't like, and, and feel incredibly free, but I can't even do that. Like I can't help anybody. So, you know, for as free as he might feel, even in, in like animal form, he's not like it's that freedom has no use if it's not in service of something. And I think like, maybe that's just something he didn't understand when he was a kid. Um, and, and and ran away from home, right? Um, and I I I think that is something that you know very few sixteen and seventeen year olds would genuinely get that. But it's something that you know we've talked about it quite a bit at at, at school. Um, you know, it, it sounds to me also like it comes from some of my background in theology too. That like you know, freedom is good, but freedom for what, right? Um, it can't just be to like, uh, it, it can't just be like unfetteredness for its own sake, I don't think.
0: Sure. No, yeah. And Wes, what do you think about the sort of ascending pa- a power of Percy and the sort of increasingly limited freedom or, or lack of freedom of Sirius? Do you see much there? Do you see something there? I uh, I
1: think that Percy's letter is an example of some of the most um, despicable writing in the entire series hmm. um, by design, right? Uh, matched hmm. only maybe by the Hogwarts High Inquisitor um, decrees, which we get very
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, many examples of as we go through. But, um, you know, Sirius uh, also has been somebody that Harry's been able to, to write to. And I found that kind of interesting, the, the motif of writing as it's sort of explored through his correspondence with Sirius. Well, well, that's cut off here too, right? Like not allowed to write to him. His owl even gets injured sort of mysteriously, but we can sort of guess what must have happened there, right, and, um, and then his owl uh, is brought back to him by Dobby, who's awesome, and knows about the Room of Requirement, which is awesome. Um, but, uh, as far as Sirius, you know, then he's sort of like driven to do something risky again, right? Because he needs to communicate with Harry and he's not being allowed to. It's like that one thing, that one connection that he had to the world, uh, is taken away again. So, you know, he almost gets caught by the, uh, the, the ring fingered hand of, of Umbridge in the fire there. Um, whereas Percy, yeah, I, I guess he's, um got it all figured out right like he knows who to hang out with and who to hitch your wagon to at this point and um and he'll let you know um in a in a very loud undertone you know stage whisper in his letter it's 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 rough yeah i feel bad with uh with ron but at least ron's on the quidditch team now so that's pretty cool
0: ron ron ends up having i'd say one hell of a year really and i think we'll get a chance to talk about that even though even the, <laughs> And I do think that's the right way to describe it. He has quite some ups and quite some downs. Um, and I'm interested in talking about that once we once we see sort of the denouement of the, the book, because um, there mm-hmm. are some things that Ron achieves that Harry does not achieve in this book. And mm-hmm. I, I, I will be interested to ask whether that is also part of the anger that Harry feels. But you know, you two, I've been fired up the last couple of weeks. And Sarah, you said something that, um, it's funny, uh, the kindness of friends you uh, you were like, well, Alex, you know, March is tough and February is tough. We're getting to that time of the year. And um, mm-hmm. you know, I have a very simple question for you all. What are you drinking tonight? Because I'm having a double of whatever it is I'm having. And it's probably a tonic <laughs> to cool my nerves because frankly speaking, I was pretty much yelling on the pre-show and I was acting like Harry when Hermione has to say, hey, cool it. We're your friends. And so I'm I'm falling into the trap of euthyphro here trying to let um some sort of idea get in the way of something that is far more than an idea which is friendship and so uh, prote- potentially becoming subject to the same criticism as percy which you know when he's described as despicable that's not a word i want associated with me mm. ever plenty of other words are fine and i've heard many of them but not that one um you know, I don't like to be despicable or disgusting. I like to be quite the opposite, um, regardless of my flaws. and so I'm taking a double and I'm going to have a good old time at the old leaky cauldron with y'all uh, <laughs> what are y'all what are y'all feeling like right now? Oh. well
2: i I guess if we were at the hogshead um, and not the leaky cauldron because that's where they go, you know, just for a special. Special meeting. This fire whiskey sounded pretty interesting. Yeah, I'll have um, some of that.
0: I'll have multiple of those.
2: I I don't want I don't want to double, <laughs> um, but uh, I just love that like Ron forgets that he's a prefect. <laughs> Ron, you're a prefect. <laughs> and he's like, and then and then he's like, his response is, "Oh yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> um." I don't know. It sounds like, to me, all whiskey is like fire. It just burns. So, um, yeah, maybe a a, a, little, a little sip of fire whiskey with um, a, a lot of ice in it to water it down.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was just uh, thinking maybe whatever Mad-Eye Moody has actually got in his class, that that could be the way to go. Um, Especially, you know, since he's a teacher and gets away with that, you know, you could just have that in your desk drawer, you know, hip pocket, whatever.
0: Yeah, you know, whatever leads me back to that bush I found in graduate school after one of those nights of, it wasn't fire whiskey in this time, it was margaritas that we had, Wes. But whatever gets me there. Yeah. You gotta have good God, I missed out. It was a good Whoa. night. It was a good night. Um we bought a little make your own margarita kit and we went through it all. I, I might have gone through it all. I know Wes had some.
1: <laughs> that, as far as Damn. I remember Yeah, it was a good night. And that's what, you know, it's all about really. Within limits, right? We gotta have certain limits because within limits that's important.
0: Right, 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 right. It, I guess it's, a, it's important to know where those limits come from. Do they come from our own judgment or do we have to legally dictate them to each other? And I suppose you know when we legally dictate, it does still come from somebody else's judgment. And so does the force come from within or is there sort of a natural force of community? Or, and to what extent do we actually have to legislate things? Perhaps that's a, a bigger question we might get into at some point. Maybe we can add in some like John Locke or Founding Fathers or somebody in somebody who we consider useful to that question, well, y'all, I feel like I'm in a much better place than I was before—a far more informed place. I think we we got to get some of the vitriol out because this umbrage seems to be having an effect, at the very least, on me. Perhaps on all of us. Um, there's just a lot of unfairness going around in this book, and it's it's getting it's getting to me a bit. It's getting to me, and I'm glad yeah. to see that it's not so easy on either of you. Too makes me feel a little less crazy, um, which is a useful thing to feel.
1: You're just as crazy as I yeah. am, as Luna Lovegood says.
0: Uh, very good, very good. Did,
2: okay, time out. Before we leave, um, yes. uh, Wes, did you notice that Professor Binns doesn't even know Harry Potter's last name?
1: Because he's such a beast. Like, he doesn't <laughs> care. <laughs> he's and
2: the I'm, only one that doesn't have to be observed because he, like, just waltzes <laughs> back in through his wall and like he <laughs> called him Perkins, like, oh yes, yes, hospital wings. Go to it, Perkins. And I I like busted out laughing.
1: <laughs> and and Neville almost takes out Draco and his two goons if he wasn't held back. By Potter. <laughs> Whatever.
2: That's all of your all of your all of your favorites are really, you know, they're they're kicking on all cylinders. Here, they're stepping this- up,
0: they're stepping up. Yeah. <laughs> I do know. I like how much battier Luna is in the books than she is in the movies. In the movies, she's sort of uh dreamy but likable. She is super batty, and <laughs> the book, which I had forgotten because, as I said, I avoid this book because of Umbridge's presence in it. So opprobrious is she. Um, but okay, well, y'all, we've been really zooming through this book very nicely. We've been doing about six chapters. Per week, uh, do we want to stick with that? Do we want to go through Chapter Twenty Four, Occlumency, this next time? Do we want to do fewer, more? I'm down for anything within limits.
1: Acluency uh, is a great one. Let's
0: do that.
2: Yeah, I think I think the uh, six chapters a week is a is a good chunk for this it's size a, text.
0: I agree. I agree. It's a it's a big one. I've actually pulled a Sarah Miller on this book i've gotten rather far ahead as indicated by my lack of knowledge of where we are my disorientation um but i'm about to go back through um i think uh the name of the 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 speaker on the audible is dale his last name is dale i forget what his first name is um something like Chip. jim jim dale yeah it's
2: it's not chip dale
0: it's it's
2: a a Jim Dale, oh restaurant. yeah, very good, <laughs> very good. Uh,
0: it's Jim Dale, Jim Dale, right, 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 and um, he's quite good. Um, and I'm told actually, yeah, he's very good. The Rings, commentator on uh, Audible is quite good too. So I'm very much looking forward to getting into all of that with you. And again, I just want to say that I, I I continue to be very thankful that we're doing this sort of project, y'all. I mean, we've been doing this for yeah almost a year now, almost a year. We're getting up there, and so you know. This has uh, become a big part of my life that I really enjoy, and I'd be like Harry losing Quidditch if I were not to have this anymore. And so I'm, uh, I appreciate you, you both being on here all the time and giving your time, giving your energy, giving your insights. Um, who better to do this with, frankly speaking? Thanks, man. Thanks yeah. for all your questions and keeping us on, on track. Yeah, That's well, sure. you know, sometimes you gotta be the fire under the kettle. Uh, but I guess you gotta, you gotta restrain yourself to the logs in that case. Um, well, you know, we'll keep bringing what we've got, you know, we've all got our different wands. We've all got our different perspectives. We've all got our different stores of information. And I think the point is we're all teachers. And so we want to just put it all out there as much as we can for as long as we can. And you know, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? Seems pretty good. For sure. All right, y'all. Well, until next time and Wes, we don't have any more early conversations this week, do we?
1: No, not unless I hear back from um, uh, the students studying uh, um, video games and, and terrorist cells. Uh, as far as I know, we're, we're clear.
0: All right, cool. Well, I, I'm looking forward to that too. I like getting up early and doing that sort of thing. I like telling my students that I got to get up too and I like taking my Instagram photos. Um, bright and early and seeing how how tired I look as I begin to show my age. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, that said, y'all, we're still at the beginning of what's hopefully a very long and fruitful partnership. And, uh, you know, I suppose we're still at the beginning of a long and fruitful friendship at this point. And, um, you know, I'm looking forward to judging us more by our fruits as we produce our fruits and perhaps soon eating some fruits because I'm getting pretty hungry here. All right. right. Bon appétit. Thank you. Have a good
2: night, fellas. Cheers. Bottoms
0: up. Cheers.
2: Bottoms up. Good night.
0: Good night.